a lot of people view it the wrong way. They wait for an idea to come around the corner where it compels them to take the leap and quit their job. The truth is that idea never really shows up, but you have to take the leap first. For example, what I'm working on now has been something I've been working on seven years. And there wasn't a eureka moment until we made breakthroughs on year seven. Daniel, start by telling us a little bit about what you've been doing today and what you're working on right now. Man, I have a interesting schedule, I guess you could say. I wake up around 5 a.m. and I try to make my matcha, gather my thoughts a little bit, and then I actually trade derivatives for a couple of hours from about 6.30 to, to 8.30 in the morning. And I've been doing that for about a year now since the pandemic started. We actually had our graduation today from the new chip accelerator program for my new company. So that was exciting. And after that, I jumped into some deep work, working on some of the core investment models that my new company is bringing to retail investors. And then after that, had late lunch and and then here we are. Thanks for having me on. And I think it's really cool what you're doing uh, with this podcast. It's definitely something that's not really common in the podcast world. Where most podcasts are talking about the successes, not necessarily the journey. Well, it sounds like you've already had a jam-packed day. And I want to hear a little bit more around how similar that is to the schedule of other founders and kind of your decision to be an entrepreneur. So we'll go a little bit into that and today we want to spend some time traveling back in time to, re to revisit some of your other entrepreneurial adventures. So you are a serial entrepreneur. Side Pocket, which we'll cover a little bit later in our conversation, is your latest passion and venture, but it isn't your first run at this. So you've got a really interesting story leading up today. So can you tell me a little bit about this winding path that you've taken that led you to become an entrepreneur? Sure. Oh man, it's not necessarily a path I recommend to everyone. I get asked a lot by people, oh, how do I become an entrepreneur? How do I start companies? These kind of things. I think the first question most people need to ask themselves is should they do that? I'm not in the boat that some of these other evangelists are like Guy Kawasaki that everybody should become an entrepreneur. It's actually a pretty shitty job. It's something where you have to really objectively look at yourself and say, this is who I'm meant to be. This is what I'm good at. I can take the ups and downs of the experience and all that stuff. But yeah, my journey was basically, I graduated college and I went into the finance hedge fund world. So most of my life, I was on that fast track to being a financial advisor or kind of a analyst at a hedge fund or investment firm. That's always what I wanted to do. And then I finally got into that and I realized maybe I don't want to use my skills that I've built making 0.01% of the population that's already wealthy, wealthier. So I took the leap fairly early in my career and probably earlier than a lot of people and probably earlier than I should have, to be honest. It was before I had a nest egg. So that experience of deciding I'm going to become an entrepreneur, build things, build companies was hard. The first few years, I'd say we're definitely, definitely uh, uphill battle, I guess you could say, but that first like year or two is always the hardest. I think you make a lot of sacrifices in terms of social activities and the friendships and anything that requires money. <laughs> I, I end up actually quitting the hedge fund world and, and basically crashing on friends' couches and spending most of my days reading about 
finance and investing or how to start companies, whatever books were out there, just absorbing as much information as possible. And, and I really got by doing really odd jobs. Like I think at one point I figured out that I can work out as a house cleaner and most of the people that ha hire house cleaners in San Francisco were actually really interesting and successful people. I'm like, this is an amazing opportunity for me to get a job that will at least pay for basic expenses and for a couple hours a day, two or three hours a day in the morning, I don't have to give up my entire workday. And basically I get access sometimes to these really smart, interesting people and can ask them questions on how they became successful. And I, I think that was really one of the biggest life hacks for me because I also read a lot of biographies and tried to study how people become outliers and do things that are really meaningful at scale. And, and that's what I always wanted to do. I always wanted to make a bigger contribution to, to society and a bigger impact. But I think most of the things that you read are probably outdated. If you want the latest information, it's really coming from other entrepreneurs or other CEOs or whether it's doctors or a very respected lawyers or whatever, I guess you could say, profession that you want to go into. So that was very valuable. I, I also taught piano and swimming and a bunch of other stuff. It got me through that period where I was just absorbing information and, and trying things out. But in hindsight, I probably also gave up a lot of monetary potential successes as well. Looking back, I, I would have made a good living working in the hedge fund world or the financial world. And over the years, I did get fairly connected into the startup ecosystem very early in San Francisco, just through friends and people I've met. And I was very proactive on that. And I had a lot of opportunities to make investments in many super unicorn companies. And I didn't have the money to do it. So I had the foresight to do it, but, but I didn't have the money. So it's, I guess, a double-edged sword there. When I look back, I, I think about how my life would have been different and I don't necessarily have regrets, but I think it would have been very different than the path that I took today. And Daniel, a follow-up on that question, for those who are interested in pursuing an idea that they're passionate about, when you took that leap, how confident were you in this idea that you were interested in? Or how did you decide that you wanted to take the odd jobs and that it was the right time for that? I think one scenario that a lot of people are considering is staying in their current jobs and taking on a side hobby or passion project and building it up on the side until they see some really interesting results before they make the leap. But it sounds like you actually took the leap quite early and just knew that you wanted to do this other thing. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think a lot of people view it the wrong way. They wait for an idea to come around the corner where it compels them to take the leap and quit their job. The truth is that idea never really shows up, but you have to take the leap first. Like for example, what I'm working on now has been something I've been working on for seven years. And there wasn't a eureka moment until we made breakthroughs on year seven, where we incorporated a company and built a product and raised money and all these things. Uh, I think it really starts out with deciding for yourself that's what you want to do and then committing to that. And I think that's really the differentiation between somebody that is just a really pure founder, entrepreneur, willing to roll up their sleeves, do anything, and, and somebody that might come in as early employee or is interested in working at a startup, but they're not the person that's going to 
be that initial catalyst and say, this is what we got to do. And, and this is what we have to build and have a little bit of foresight. And of course, convince a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of really smart people, normally people smarter than them to, to work on that particular idea. And so you have the foresight, you decide to take the leap. And then from there, who did you talk to? I think one of the common questions that we see out there is who do I go to get feedback? Do I go to potential customers and ask them like, is XYZ a good idea or not? Do I go and seek an investor right away? Do I need to find a mentor? Do I spend time teaching myself everything and anything possible? What was your approach to that? That's a really good question too. I get that asked a lot, actually, especially from people that want to be entrepreneurs or feel like that's a direction that they're heading into. And my answer is normally there's more than one way. I've identified at least three different ways that you can give yourself that self-confidence and say, yes, that's, that's something I should do, especially if you have a specific product or idea in mind. I'd say the first way is, yes, talk to customers. Like when I got the idea for Skunk Lock, the first thing I did before I built anything is I went and asked a dozen cyclists. I told them the idea and, and I said, would you buy something like this? And more than half of them started taking money out of their pocket. That's real validation. And so that's encouragement. That's what kind of uh, motivates you to, to keep going with that. However, that's not the only kind of method. Another method is pitch your idea to successful serial entrepreneurs. One thing that uh, you acquire once you're on company three or four or five or have made a lot of successful investments as well is the ability to gauge ideas and, and potential companies. So ask other entrepreneurs that have done it and been through it. That feedback is really valuable. Or the third one is really just build it. If, you, if it can be built in a weekend, do it. Put it out there, see what the feedback is. If the feedback is positive rather than, then you can continue with it. Thanks for sharing how you approach that. And one of the interesting things about being a founder today is that it's really interdisciplinary when you want to combine some of the industries that you're passionate about with technology and really bring in new innovations. A lot of people who want to be founders have either business backgrounds or non-technical backgrounds, but oftentimes they're stumped when they come across an idea of a platform or software that they want to build. We would love to hear how you approach that and whether you have those type of coding skills, or if you don't, what's the best way to find someone who's good at that kind of stuff? Is it outsourcing it? Is it trying to find a technical co-founder? What are some other avenues to make your team full skill and full stack so that you can execute on these ideas that you're interested in? So I'm a big believer that the number one thing that defines a class A entrepreneur is their ability to inspire people to work on their projects. If you can inspire somebody, especially a technical person that has offers they're basically guarantee I'm going to be a millionaire in 10 years from Facebook and Google and, and whatnot. Uh, to work basically for free on something for two or three years, you should be an entrepreneur. That's really all it comes down to when you're building kind of a zero to, to one company. And I think that is to some degree a skill that can be learned as well. But let's say you don't have those technical skills. In my case, I have some technical skills, but they're limited to a very specific industry. So I know how to uh, code financial models, basically. Not very helpful if you need to build an app or a website. Etc. Something that's forward, something that customers see. So of course I had to get uh, people excited about every, anything that I work on. And I think 
The easiest way to do that is play to your strengths. One other strength that I developed to get over that hump is being able to design user experiences and UI. So right now it's really easy. You can download UI kits online for Adobe XD, or if you want to build it in another platform, you can actually build very high fidelity hotspot prototypes that'll show the vision of what you want to build, or you can get some contractors as well and, and help you out with that for very little. But in my case, it was, it was one of those things where I wanted to show what the vision was and, and how it would work and how it would look and have some autonomy there. And so I definitely recommend picking up a little bit of design know-how along the way if you're not a technical person at all. That makes a ton of sense. We chat with several founders who don't have the technical coding skills themselves. And a lot of their day is spent going out there and evangelizing their story, their company, and trying to convince people that the mission is both exciting enough, innovative enough, but also going to provide enough um, financial return in the long run and entice people to join their team on the coding and engineering fronts. So I think that's really valuable advice for the listeners. So let's unpack a little bit around some of the upsides for the founder. We talked a lot about risks and some of the trade-offs. One of the many reasons that people are interested in being a founder is because we hear about these overnight millionaires with an exit event like an IPO or something of that sort. So what are the upsides of being a founder when it comes to equity? What are the differences between being a founder versus an early employee? And what can one reasonably expect in being a founder versus joining a team that already exists, but early in their days? For starters, the probability that any equity that you get is worth anything is astronomically low. So if I was doing this because I wanted to be rich, I would have just continued to work in the hedge fund route. And I have a number of friends that did, and they make $5 million. So it's not about money at the end of the day. There's things that are more guaranteed to make you good money over the long term. If you become an entrepreneur and start a company, I think there's really you know two main archetypes. The first one is somebody that just can't work for other people. They just don't do very well. And the second archetype is somebody that is really unorthodox in terms of their productivity. Like their productive time may be between midnight and 5 a.m. And in, in classic nine to five culture, they just would never succeed or they need to sleep 12 hours a day. And I know a number of people that fit that mold and for them, it would just be impossible to keep a job over a long term. So very rarely I find an entrepreneur and they're like, oh yeah, I did it for the money. I want it to be rich. I'd say maybe there's one more archetype, which is the person that wants to solve their own problem. I, I rarely meet any entrepreneurs that are building something that they wouldn't use themselves. It's just such a long journey. If you're not solving a problem for yourself, then it's just not going to happen. But there is upsides in addition to access to that founder equity. I guess, legally speaking, you get common shares, you get benefits of being able to file a section 83B. And then that contrasts to what an early employee would get with it, which is within an option pool in the company. So normally it's less equity and, and it's treated differently. But I think the other benefit really is being able to set a culture in a company that you believe is an appropriate comp company culture and that fits your own kind of viewpoints and, and what you envision a company should be like. 
I think that and some flexibility as well in the early days in terms of when you work and all that. I think there's a lot of benefits to to being a founder. I'd say the one that matters the least is the financial upside, probably, because that one's the least guaranteed. Gotcha. So if your goal is to become an overnight millionaire, don't go become a founder because that's not the direct path there. Yeah, definitely don't uh, be a founder. (laughs) Sounds good. Wise advice for all of us. At this point, I want to switch gears a bit. So we learned a little bit about your background, how you think about entrepreneurship, and let's hone in now on the story behind your current venture. So tell us about how you first came across the idea for Side Pocket. Sure. So like I said earlier, it's something I've been working on a long time, and it was really to solve a deeper problem for me personally. So as an entrepreneur, as the captain of the ship, in particular, you are generally the last person to get paid. So even when you raise capital, the last thing you want is your company to go out of business. So generally what you do is you will cut your salary, you won't pay yourself, you'll make no money. That's happened to me multiple times, including when the pandemic hit, in the case of Skunk Lock, I'm very adamant about not firing anybody or not reducing uh, salaries. So I have to start trading to make up for any income. I, I'd say side pockets inspiration was because I needed to solve the problem of not being a salaried founder for many years. I needed to be able to make money and just pay the bills over time. So there's a few different ways you can do that. If I was able to save up a small nest egg. So investing that or trading that in the markets was one of the skills that I had developed. And as soon as I left the hedge fund world, I, I really started working on answering this question of can these more sophisticated quantitative strategies that are applied in hedge funds for multimillionaire institutional investors be applied to smaller retail investors? And it took many years to build these out in a way where it was I was able to at least supplement my income and uh, pay myself enough to continue building companies. But I think the culmination of that is in last year when the pandemic hit, I had a number of family members and friends and acquaintances that were following these models, just post what the buys and sells are on on. And what we do is referred to in the industry as tactical asset allocation in contrast to what most robo-advisors do, which is strategic asset allocation or most advisors in general, which is basically you answer a bunch of questions. They develop a risk tolerance for you. They buy you a bunch of ETFs and basically you keep those for the rest of your life. So tactical asset allocation is a little bit different because it actually looks at how the market's perform in real time and looks at signals like momentum and volatility and different factors and it makes adjustments to your allocation based on those market signals. So essentially when the pandemic hit, we had a few of these people call me and say, I don't know what you built here, but we basically didn't lose money. These algorithms pulled us out of equities in February of 2020. So whatever you're doing here, you need to make this into an app. You need to incorporate it more people need to get access to this. So that's uh, why I ended up doing, incorporating the company in April, 2020. Now we have the thriving beta and a bunch of people that are trying it out with not real money yet. That's coming in the next a few months or so, but that's really the, the story behind it. And we're really excited about bringing this to the market with real capital in the next few months. That's a really exciting journey. And I'm not surprised that 
came during the pandemic when a lot of people had to reevaluate the current situations. And I do love to hear that you put your team first and you forced yourself to come up with a different solution in terms of becoming non-reliant on your salary for your income. And so one question that a lot of people are thinking about right now is there's this general interest in investment right now, uh, particularly with like technology stocks or just stocks in general. And my question is, couldn't we just all invest in GameStop and AMC and become millionaires like everyone else on Reddit? Like, why do we need this? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one that I get asked pretty often. So there's really three options for investing right now for most people, right? The, the first one is gambling on these trading, commission-free trading apps. So everybody knows the Robin Hoods and the Weebles of the world and buying these meme stocks like GME and AMC and whatnot. But the problem is these apps are specifically designed to disadvantage retail investors. And there's even peer-reviewed academic papers proving that people lose money on Robinhood just because of how the app is designed and incentivizes people to, to do things that are generally much more speculative than you would normally. It's very problematic doing that. It's not really investing. It's more so gambling. And they're filed actually as broker dealers, which they have no fiduciary duty. So what that means is they are not required to do what's in your best interest. They're required to do what's best interest of their shareholders and make their shareholders as much money as possible. So every time you trade or make a very speculative trade on their app, which they encourage you to do, they get payment uh, for order flow. They sell that to high frequency trading firms like Citadel. And the more they do that, regardless of how much money you lose, the more money they make. So this is finally coming to light. It's something that I've been telling people for a number of years now, but it's finally blowing up. The second kind of thing that most people have as an option for investing is robo-advisors, the wealth fronts and the betterments of the world. The problem is they, they apply strategic asset allocation and they average, I'd say, below uh, benchmark returns. So they underperform simple index funds or the S&P 500. Most people aren't really happy anymore with 7% per year return. That's why they're going to Robinhood and speculating and, and trading uh, GME and GameStop and so on. And then of course you have these very traditional brick and mortar advisors that don't have apps. You can't see your money in a transparent way. So there's not very many kind of opportunities for people or good options for people to invest their money right now. And I think that's really unfortunate because based on where we are economically, I think the biggest surprise and biggest bubble that nobody is seeing, it's not in SPACs, it's not in cryptocurrency, it's in strategic asset allocation. And it's in this idea that you can buy a basket of ETFs and over the next couple of decades, they're just going to grow. I don't necessarily think that's a guarantee anymore. We've seen that be the case in a certain kind of investment regime where it's essentially low interest rates and we've been in a bull market for the most part. I think it's going to be a rude awakening for people once they realize that their retirement accounts haven't really performed as well as these, these kind of portfolios have promised, right? What do you think about the general consumer's understanding of everything that you just described? One of the challenges I think is you tell them, hey, Robinhood is screwing you over and they look at their earnings and due to this bull market, as you described, they're like, hey, I made a little bit of money here. Like it's okay, or I'm just gonna keep going with this. Is there more education that needs to happen in this market? Or what are some of the things that you think this industry needs to see? I, I think education really is the key 
in this market, that's probably also the most difficult part. Investing is not sexy and it's not as novelty as skunk lock, a lock that pepper sprays thieves when they cover it. It's not something you're going to go tell your friends about. So it is difficult for any kind of company to, to break in that industry and get people interested about it. I'm very actually thankful of Robinhood and Weeple because they have made investing relevant again to most people. They've grown, I think, 800 plus percent just year to date, and they've acquired millions of new users. Of course, most of those users, 90 plus percent, don't continue using the app after they realize that it's not an easy button, right? You have to research what stocks to buy. You have to watch your stocks. Uh, most people have families and they have work and they can't commit to trading eight, eight hours per day. So I'm, but I'm actually very thankful because that was the biggest battle was getting people interested in investing and convincing them investing is critical to building wealth over time and not to count on social security in your retirement. This idea that you need to have an nest egg, I think is much more prevalent today than it was ever before. I think the next step is taking those people that realize I don't want to be a day trader and I don't want to speculate. This is crazy. I just lost a bunch of money and bringing them into real investing solutions. So I think that's going to be the next kind of a uh, major shift in the industry is going to be away from these commission-free trading apps where people are going to start going back to work. They're going to realize this is too stressful and I don't really have the time for it. And I'd rather just get a really good return consistently over time. I think over time, that will definitely come to light in the industry just out of necessity. And I think it's already happening to, to a degree. And on the note of speculation, we certainly can't avoid talking about cryptocurrencies and the role that's playing in swaying people one way or the other or focusing more on stock versus crypto and other types of assets. Would love your reaction to everything that's just happening in this space right now. What's your general take with that? How will side pocket play into that? Or are you currently not necessarily planning for that at the moment? In regards to crypto currencies specifically, cryptocurrencies are currencies, they're not an investment. So that's my viewpoint. That being said, I don't see them as this existential threat to society. Like I do generally speaking, how most people view investing today. I think that's the real bubble. You know, the fact that, oh, I'll just buy this basket of ETFs and it's going to do great over the next few decades. And the reason being is most people, even unsophisticated investors, they don't put their entire life savings into cryptocurrencies. They might put 1% of your savings and buy some altcoins and a little bit of Bitcoin on Binance or whatnot. And that's, I think, perfectly fine. But I think it, it has to be acknowledged that it's purely speculatory and most of them will probably depreciate over time. So I don't really consider it an investment. So that's why we're not really in that space. If you want to buy cryptocurrencies, great, buy cryptocurrencies, just don't put your life savings into it. I think that's sound advice for a lot of people. In regard to your point around it being a currency, we see like big retailers around the world, like Overstock and Microsoft even, and just Home Depot even, Namecheap, that's like a domain provider. All these companies are now accepting cryptocurrencies as basically like cash transactions. So I, I think it'll be really interesting to see who's still around in a few years. Yeah. And I, I actually love the idea of a cryptocurrency. The problem I have with cryptocurrencies is it fails to be a currency. 
For example, if I wanted to go buy something, let's say at a burger joint that accepts Bitcoin, if I did that when Bitcoin was 65,000 and hours later, I went back and tried to get dinner there, I'm paying double. The volatility in cryptocurrencies and altcoins basically makes them completely useless for payments unless there's no alternative. That's the problem. And there's plenty of things that there's no alternative, right, to cryptocurrency. But for most things, I, I just don't see the use case, especially if you go at Bitcoin ATM and there's, you have to provide your ID and you have to pay a large fee and, and so on. It's just the practicality is limited right now. And I hope that over time, it, it becomes more stable and, and not just the speculation vehicle. That makes sense. And for this outro, I want to focus on what you're doing with SidePocket and what can we expect next? Are you releasing something? What can people look forward to doing? So currently we're in an open but dry beta. So what that means is anyone can download the app, play with the app, fund some of our, what we call side pockets. And a side pocket is just a portfolio of different quantitative strategies. So when most advisors build you a portfolio, they'll put stocks, bonds, ETFs of all sorts into it. And then you hold that. This is a portfolio of individual quant strategies that are all kind of trading for you individually. So that's a unique idea we're bringing to the market. And right now it's not using real capital. So you can fund these, see how they perform. And then we're planning on launching with real capital in September. And you can easily say, okay, I want to make this a real account and fund it with real money. Uh, and we'll walk you through that process. So we essentially want to make sure that people get to see how the app works before putting any real money into it, because we definitely stand behind what we're doing. And we really believe that this is going to be a great tool for, for many retail investors for, for years to come. Awesome. And if people want to learn more about SidePocket or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? You can sign up for the beta on SidePocket.com. And you're welcome to email us at team at sidepocket.com for any inquiries. And if you have any questions about what we're working on, we're happy to answer them.